You are listening to the 1830 Podcast Network. Find us easily by searching 1830 Podcast Network directly on the Apple Podcasts app, Google Podcasts app, or Spotify app. Also visit us at facebook.com forward slash 1830podcastnetwork for more information. Hello again, this is Stephen Kimball on this fourth day of August 2020 for my second episode of For What It's Worth, a study on denying the Holy Ghost. So I want to start by saying that uh, this particular piece is an opinion by Stephen Kimball. I don't think that anybody else has ever talked about this or preached about this. It's entirely possible, as I certainly don't believe there's anything new. But this is my opinion on on several of the scriptures uh, referring to denying the Holy Ghost. And and let's get into some of those scriptures that I want to read real quick. And I want to be careful, as I'll say this probably several times, I don't want to get down any... Uh, rabbit holes or squirrel holes, chasing any squirrels type of thing. So I'm going to do my best to stay on task. So let's get into these scriptures. Uh, There's five of them that I know of, and I want to read them all, referencing uh, denying the Holy Ghost in in some form or the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin, whatever they want to call it. And the first one is in Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to turn over to Matthew chapter 12. And read verses 31 to 32. And this is right in the middle where Christ is speaking. This is Christ speaking. He's right in the middle talking about every kingdom divided against itself. And it says this, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. And so we hear what this sin is, and, and, and by uh, chasing squirrels and all of that, all I'm saying, I'm not going to define what this sin is or who's done it, who hasn't done it. Uh, but what I'm going to talk about is what it's mentioned here. Uh, I think it's interesting as we get to the passage. I think it's in 1 John. Uh, when you read, if you look at the uh, Matthew Henry talk about it, of course, he has no idea what it is either, but he goes into a great explanation on it. It's good reading if you ever wanted to get into that. But again, to, to or not again, but to my opinion here, uh, my opinion here is is when you read this and you go through this, and I want to give you this out early, the summary of this. In my opinion, this sin against the Holy Ghost is not, it's unforgivable, it's unpardonable. So it's a spiritual death, but I also believe it's a physical death. And we'll get into a couple scriptures about that. And the reason I think that later on, but let's continue reading these. I just wanted to get my opinion out there. So Mark 3 is the next passage that gets into this. And in Mark 3, 28 and 29. It says this, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of man, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And now here we see Mark talking about it. He's a little more blunt about it, but at the end he says, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And, and I I'm not sure what he means by that. If the sin is unforgivable, then then certainly you're you're not in danger. You will have eternal damnation. But but he leaves that open for a reason, and I'll, I'll give that those who would disagree with those this opinion. 
Next one, just going in order uh, scripturally or in, in the same order as the scriptures, we turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, this is verses 4 and 6, or 4 through 6, excuse me. And it says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew themselves again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So here again, denying that, that is uh, saying uh, very specifically, you know, that it's that it's impossible for those who are once enlightened to come back to that. So he makes that comment. Uh, and then the last one in the Bible goes to 1 John. So if we turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. It says this, If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I say, that he shall pray for it. All unrighteous and sin, and, and there is a sin not unto death. And so in this passage right here, he, he makes a statement, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. And I think what, when you read Matthew Henry, and I've read this, I think what he's saying by that is, is uh, you know, don't, don't even ask if this was a, a sin unto death, or, or don't even ask about what knowing this is. I, I don't know what it is. But this is where that Matthew Henry does a good dissertation um, if you want to read through his writings on, on this sin against the Holy Ghost. And then the last one I want to read on this where it talks about is in Alma 19. In Alma 19, and this is him talking to his son Corianton, who had committed these great sins, including running around with a harlot, all of this stuff. And he says this to him. Now keep in mind, this, is, uh, this would be Old Testament times in this particular passage. It says this in verse 6 through 9. Again, Alma 19, 6 through 9. Thou shouldest have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord? Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost, once it has had place in you, and you know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Now this is important where he says once it has place in you, because there's some that have brought this up, you know, who, who has the Holy Ghost, who can sin against this Holy Ghost? Is it only people who have been baptized? You know, in this case, he wasn't baptized, but there is some reference to having place in you in its Old Testament time. So, uh, again, I can be persuaded on this part of it, but, you know, this, in my opinion, this, this physical death and spiritual death that takes place, I, I think whether you've been baptized or not, these things, I, I think it's both a spiritual and a physical death. Now, I want to read one more scripture regarding this, and I think it's a different instance of, of what we are talking about. And this is in chapter 12 of the second book of Nephi on page 152, and I want to read verses 2 through 6. And it says this, 
And this is talking about the Book of Mormon, and he's he's speaking about the Book of Mormon to come, and it says in verse 2, And all the things which shall be written out of the book, the Book of Mormon, shall be of great worth unto the children of men, especially unto our seed, which is a remnant of the house of Israel. For it shall come to pass in that day that the churches which are built up, and not unto the Lord, when the one shall say to the other, Behold, I, I am the Lord's, and the other shall say, I am the Lord's. And thus shall everyone say that hath built up churches, and not unto the Lord. And they shall contend one with another, and their priests shall contend one with another, and they shall teach with their learning, and deny the Holy Ghost which giveth utterance. And they deny the power of God, the Holy One of Israel, and they say unto the people, Hearken unto us, and hear ye our precept. For there is no God today, for the Lord and the Redeemer hath done his work, and he hath given his power unto men. And I think this instance of denying the Holy Ghost is referring to the people that will say that the Lord has no power in all of this. I think this is different than, than actually uh, physically denying the Holy Ghost. They're basically just saying there is no God and we're not even going to worry about those things. And so I think it's a different instance just to point that out as one reference I found that, that I see this as a, as a different um, topic, if you will. Okay, so I want to go to a couple examples here. First one is Acts chapter 5, and I want to read verses 1 through 11. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? He says, lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land while it remained. Was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which are buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee away. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And so we see here as an example, again, not going to chase any squirrels here. We could talk about what this is talking about, but they, they, they lied to the Holy Ghost. They committed this sin. Uh, you know, we weren't there. We don't know that, you know, what happened there, but notice that there was a physical death, that, that they died when they, when they committed this, this sin, whatever it was. And then the next example I want to talk about is in Moroni chapter 8, towards the end of the book, obviously. If we go to Moroni chapter 8. I didn't write the page number down here, so bear with me. Moroni chapter 8, 31 through 35. Now this is interesting. This is the end of the Book of Mormon, obviously. And this is Mormon writing to Moroni, talking about uh, the wars that are going on. This is, you know, before he obviously hands these things off to him and it's being written down and recorded. And so 31 to 35. Behold, the pride of this nation or the people of the Nephites have proven their destruction, except they should repent. Pray for them, my son, that repentance may come unto him. 
But behold, I fear lest the Spirit has ceased striving with them. And in this part of the land they are also seeking to put down all power and authority which cometh from God, and they are denying the Holy Ghost. And after rejecting so great a knowledge, my son, they must soon perish unto the fulfilling of the prophecies which were spoken by the prophets, as well as the words of our Savior himself. Of course, referring back to the prophecy of what would happen to them, that they would fall away. But but here he says it, you know, what happens after denying this Holy Ghost, that they must they must perish soon, thus adding to my opinion that, that it's a physical death upon denying the Holy Ghost. And uh, I don't know that it's quickly, but uh, we'll read a couple more examples that that I think are interesting that, that don't exactly fall into line like those two. But we're going to read about Korahor and Zizram. And I want to, and it's the differences in these stories that I think it's interesting. Korahor ends up dying, begging for his food. And then Zizram ends up living. But listen to the difference in how things lay out. So the first one starts in Alma 16. And I'm going to read, I'm going to skip around here. You'll forgive me if you want to take the time, pause it right here and read this whole story on Korahor. But I, I don't want to just read this whole time. I, I want you to read it if you want to. But I want to start here at 6 through 7. And it came to pass in the 17th year, the reign of judges, there was continual peace. But it came to pass in the latter end of the 17th year, there came a man into the land of Zarahemla, and he was Antichrist, for he began to preach unto the people against the prophecies which had been spoken by the prophets concerning the coming of Christ. We'll skip over to 13. Read 13 through 18. And this Antichrist, whose name was Korahor, and the law could have no hold upon him. There was no law against him doing this. And he began to preach unto the people that there should be no Christ. And after this manner did he preach, saying, O ye that are bound down under foolish and vain hope, why do ye yoke yourself with foolish things? Why do ye look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come. Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, which ye are handed down by the holy prophets, behold, they are foolish traditions of your father. How do you know of their surety? Behold, you cannot know of things which you do not see. Therefore, you cannot know that there shall be a Christ." Ye look forward and say that ye see a remission of sins, but behold, it is the effect of a frenzied mind. And this derangement of your minds comes because of the tradition of your father, which leads you away into a belief of things which are not so. And many more such things did he say unto them, telling them that there could be no atonement made for the sins of men. But every man fared in his life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and every man conquered according to his strength, and whatever a man did was no crime. And then we skip over to verse 43. And this is, uh, I think it's Alma speaking back to him. Uh, 43, Then why sayest thou we preach unto this people to get gain, when thou of thyself knowest that we receive no gain, and now believest thou that we deceive this people that causes such joy in their hearts? And Korahor answered him, Yea. And then Alma saith unto him, Believest thou that there is a God? And he answered, Nay. Now Alma saith unto him, Will you deny again that there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you that there is a God, and also Christ shall come. And now what evidence have you that there is no God, or that Christ cometh not, I say unto you, that ye have none, save it be your word only. But behold, I have things as a testimony that the things are true, and ye have all things as a testimony to you that they are true, and will ye deny them? Uh, I could easily chase a squirrel there. Very interesting way to fight against somebody who's trying to tell you that there is no God. It's a good passage to read. 
But let's go on here, skip over to 65, and we'll read 65 through about 72. Behold, he hath showed you a sign, and, and he's been struck dumb because he asked for a sign, and now must, was, through the power of the Lord struck him dumb. 65, Behold, he hath showed unto you a sign, and now ye will dispute more. Korhor poured forth his hand and wrote, saying, I know that I am dumb, for I cannot speak, and I know that nothing save it were the power of God could bring this upon me. Yea, and I also knew that there was a God. But behold, the devil hath deceived me, for he appeared unto me in the form of an angel and said unto me, Go and reclaim this people, for they have gone astray after an unknown God. And he saith unto me, There is no God, yea, and he taught me what I should say, and I have taught his words, and I have taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. And I taught them even until I had much success, insomuch that I verily believed that they were true, and for this cause I withstood the truth, even until I have brought this great curse upon me. Now when he had said this, he besought that Alma should pray unto God that the curse might be taken from him. And Alma said unto him, If this curse should be taken from thee, Thou wouldest again lead away the hearts of the people, therefore it shall be unto thee, even as the Lord will. And it came to pass that the curse was not taken off Korahor, but he was cast out and went about from house to house begging for his food. And then we skip over to 75 and see what happened to him. And Korahor did go about from house to house begging for food for his support. And it came to pass that he went forth among the people, yea, among the people which had separated themselves from the Nephites, which we called themselves Zoramites, being led by a man whose name was Zoram, and he went forth amongst them. Behold, he was run upon and trodden down, even until he was dead. And so we see Korahor quickly died a physical death after these things. And you notice, and you'll see this difference with Zeezrom, and you notice what he did is is he knew the things that he were saying was saying was wrong. He knew what had happened to him. He knew all of these things, and yet he was still saying them and fighting to them. And he dies this this physical death. And we contrast that uh, with Zizram. And this is fairly short. We'll skip over to 8. Chapter 8 of Alma, 45 and 46, just to introduce Zizram. And it came to pass that there was among among them whose name was Zizram. Now he was the foremost to accuse Amulek and Alma, he being one of the most expert among them, having much business to do among the people. And then we skip over to Alma 9, 2 through 10, to get an understanding of, of who he was. And you can read what he says. Uh, but 2 through 10 says this in chapter 9 of Alma. Now the words of Alma spake unto Zizram were heard by the people round about, for the multitude was great, and he spake on this wise. Now Zizram, seeing that thou hast been taken in thy lying and craftiness, for thou hast not lied unto men only, but thou hast lied unto God. For behold... He knows all thy thoughts, and thou seest that thy thoughts are made known unto us by his Spirit. And thou seest that we know that thy plan was a very subtle plan as to the subtlety of the devil, for to lie and to deceive this people, notice lie and deceive the people, not unto God, that thou mightest set them against us and revile us and cast us out. Now this was the plan of thine adversary, and he hath exercised his power in thee. Now I would that you should remember that what I say unto you, I say unto all, and behold, I say unto you all, that this was a snare of the adversary, which he hath laid to catch his people, that he might bring you unto subjection unto him, that he might encircle you about with his chains, that he might chain you down to everlasting destruction, according to the power of his captivity. Now when Alma had spoken these words, Zeezrom made to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God. And so you see here, he's being convinced of the power of God. He, he apparently by this did not know the power of God, but now he's being convinced of it. And then if we skip over um, and write that scripture down, 
Okay, here it is in chapter 10, starting on verse 92. And it came to pass that they went immediately obeying the message which he had sent unto them. And they went in unto the house unto Zizram, and they found him upon his bed sick, being very low with a burning fever, and his mind was also exceeding sore because of his iniquities. And when he saw them, he stretched forth his hand and besought them that they would heal him. And it came to pass, Alma said unto him, Taking him by the hand, believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation? And he answered and said, Yea, I believe in all the words that thou hast taught. And Alma said, If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. And he saith, Yea, I believe according to thy words. And then Alma cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord our God, have mercy on this man, and heal him according to his faith which is in Christ. And it came to pass, when Alma had said these words, Zizim leaped on his, upon his feet and began to walk. And this was done to the great astonishment of all the people, and the knowledge of this went forth throughout all the land of Sidon. And Alma baptized Zizram unto the Lord, and he began from that time forth to preach unto the people. So in simple words, I mean, I think the difference between Zizram and Korahor is Korahor knew what he was doing. Zizram was just trying to make money and really had no concept of uh, of God or never considered it. So I, I see a difference in these two. And, and again, Korahor died the physical death, and, and Zizram didn't. And, and people, I'm sure there's others that would argue that, you know, well, Korhor didn't have the Holy Ghost. He died for another reason, and that's fine. Again, this is this is certainly my opinion on this. Okay, so now to uh, my justification and to further summarize this study, I want to go to Alma 19, 91 through 95, and I want to read about this probationary state. And this is, again, he's talking to Corianton, and we know what happened to Corianton, but uh, again, Corianton went on to, to preach and teach this gospel after Alma had thought maybe that he had sinned against the Holy Ghost, but, but he had not. And so 91, starting there, Therefore, as they become carnal, sensual, and devilish by nature, for in Adam and Eve, this probationary state became a state for them to prepare, became a preparatory state. And now remember, my son, if it were not for the plan of redemption laying in a sign, as soon as they were dead, their souls were miserable being cut off from the presence of the Lord, and now there was no means to reclaim men from this fallen state which man had brought upon himself because of his disobedience. Therefore, according to the justice, the plan of redemption could not be brought about. Only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state, yea, this preparatory state, for except it were these conditions, mercy could not take effect except it should destroy the work of justice. Now the work of justice could not be destroyed if so God would cease to be God. And then you skip over to 108 through 1012, and it says, And thus God bringeth about his great and eternal purposes, which were prepared from the foundation of the world. And thus cometh about the salvation and redemption of men, and also their destruction and misery. Therefore, O my son, whosoever will come may come and partake of the waters of life freely. And whosoever will not come, the same is not compelled to come. But in the last day it shall be restored unto him according to his deeds. And if he hath desired to do evil and hath not repented in his day, Behold, evil shall be done unto him according to the restoration of God. And now, my son, I desire that ye should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you with the trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. And so, again, I think this is a great summary. When we talk about probation, this is what I get to, and we'll read about probation again in Alma chapter 9. When we read about probation, think about what probation is. You know, probation is this time. If we think about it, you know, if you commit a crime and the judge says, hey, you're under probation, you know, what happens if you break that probation? Well, you're going to go to jail.
that's what happens or or um, you know that's that's if you're in school and they the school puts you on probation and says hey you're on probation if you break this probation then punishment is cast upon you and and that's when we look at this life this in in the restoration groups this is what we believe that this time is a preparatory time this is a time where we're going to choose God or we're going to choose the devil nowhere in between and so that's what we've got to do in this life is this preparatory time so if you break this probation, if you commit a sin which is unforgivable, what is the point of you you living? There isn't one. There, there's not one. I mean, you can look at a host of bad characters in life. You know, Hitler, uh, Mao, uh, what was the guy's name in China? Uh, Mao Zedong, is that his name? But anyways, there's a lot of bad characters. Saddam Hussein, there's lots of people that have killed. Genghis Khan have killed millions and millions. And obviously were wicked people, but they didn't die a physical death. I don't think they committed. They, they still had an opportunity to commit this sin. So let's skip over. I want to read this last verse here in Alma 9. Alma 9, and I want to read 39 through 41. And now behold, I say unto you that if it had been possible for Adam to partake of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, there would have been no death, and the word would have been void, making God a liar. For he said, If thou eat thou shalt surely die. And we see the death comes upon mankind, yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there is a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been broken up, spoken of by us, which is, say, which is after the resurrection of the dead. And so here we read again about this uh, probationary time that uh, we have in this life to prepare. And what happens if you do something in that probation? And, and really, you think about that. The other thing is that probation is set by that judge or by that school or whomever is putting you on probation. The terms of that probation are set by those in charge. You know, in a case of jail, they may say, well, you're going to jail now instead of being free. In the case of school, you may be suspended. Or, or whatever takes place. They may throw you out of the school for whatever reason. So those terms of that probation are set by the Lord. And, and one of the things that he says is, you know, you, you can sin and you must seek repentance to do that if you wish to uh, choose life eternal. But there is one sin that mentioned in five different places at least that says these are unforgivable. And that's why I say with the few examples that I've read that I believe this death is physical. Now, why is this important to me? Why is this uh, opinion of mine important to me? Well, think about this. You know, if, if that's our thought, if, if that sin against the Holy Ghost, we don't know what that is. Uh, we, we really don't. And I, be honest, I don't want to know what that is <laughs> because I don't want to commit it. But the thing is, is when we look at any person that we see in my mind, they have not committed that sin. They still have this opportunity. They're still in this preparatory state. They're still in this probationary state where they can prepare. And so, you know, in my mind, you never, ever give up on anybody. There, there's no person you should ever give up. As long as they're still alive, you cannot give up on them. And that's why... Uh, I obviously believe this opinion is correct, and, and I'm not opposed to people telling me otherwise that they think I'm wrong on this, and I'm okay with that. But when you look at it that way, you don't ever give up on anybody, and I think that's why it's important to view this sin as a physical and spiritual death. Because as long as somebody's still alive, they still have opportunity to serve the Lord.